Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown, here today with my co-host, Kizzy Joseph. Kizzy and I will be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Nakaya Jones was born in Cleveland, Ohio. She studied criminal justice at Wilberforce University with the intention of becoming a prosecuting attorney. Jones always wanted to be a productive member in her neighborhood and was drawn to a career where she could both protect and serve. In 1999, she joined the Highland Hills Police Department and in 2002, she was sworn in as the first African-American female officer for the city of Warrensville Heights, Ohio, where she also lived. She held that position as the senior response officer until 2017. After the deaths of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling in 2016, she posted a passionate video on Facebook responding to the shootings as a mother, an African-American woman, and a police officer. Little did she know what she thought was a personal post for family and friends would go viral. Within 24 hours, her video had been viewed more than 1.2 million times with nearly 80,000 shares, and the views continued to climb. Her video, which lasts more than seven minutes, included calling out any officers who may have had racial problems. Officer Jones talks about the contradictions between living as an African-American woman and mother while walking the blue line as a police officer. Nakaya, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, you are still in Atlanta, right? And I know that you yes. are originally, you started out, you know, and I've been looking at, at some of your book too, which is which has been like very helpful. Um, you were born, or you grew up in Ohio. And I was reading your book, and I know that you went through, you had a, a a challenging childhood as you went through a lot, but what led you to want to become a police officer? Um, I think we talked about this, but um, at first I wanted to be a prosecuting attorney. Um, that was mm-hmm. my goal. Um, I always, I felt like I wanted to be the voice for 
people that didn't have a voice, you know, people that were caught up in the criminal justice system or that, that have been violated. And I wanted to be that prosecutor that would say, hey, I got your back. Let's get these, you know, people off the streets. Um, but God had a different plan for me. Um, I went to Wilberforce University. Um, my second year, my grandmother became quadriplegic. Um, she had surgery. Mm-hmm. And at that point, my mom and her two sisters decided that they were going to take care of my grandmother. Um, I went home. I left school to help my mom and be a support system for my mom. During that time, I ended up getting pregnant uh, with my daughter, my first daughter, um, after her birth, I kept on saying, I do not want to be a statistic. You know, my mom had been on welfare. My mm-hmm. aunt had been on welfare. My grandmother was on welfare. Now, my great-grandmother wasn't, but my grandmother. Mm-hmm. So you know that they say welfare is a generational curse. They say that a mm-hmm. lot of times it goes to the family. I wanted to be the one to break that. Um, so I talked to my mom, um, and I told her, I said, I, 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 I think – you know, I watched the Rodney King um, beat while I was in school, and I really, it's hard for me to understand or believe that all officers are this kind of way. I want to be a police officer because then I'll still be able to help people. I'll be able to take the criminals off the street, but I'll also be able to help less fortunate people. I can, I can help people in two different ways. And so um, at first she was like, I don't know about you being a police officer because it, it's a scary job. Um, mm-hmm. eventually she was like, well, if that's what you want to do, then go ahead for it. And that's what made me go ahead and get into law enforcement. I've always been that person that I, I, I gravitate to the underdog. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was because of my childhood, but I've always gravitated to that. And so once I got into law enforcement, I realized what I felt like God had finally placed me in my purpose. Well, you know, when I was looking at your childhood, I mean, you are, you've been a caregiver, you know. It seems like from childhood on up, you've been a caregiver, you know. And that caring part also goes into wanting to be a police person. And I noticed that when you had been working at the post office and, you know, you were just like ready to go and then you went to school to do that, at that point in time, didn't a lot of people go like, you know, post office? I mean, here, I know people go post office. Oh, that's good money. And, and there are people who would always say, like, if you could get in at the post office, hey, that's it. That's what you want to do. And, you know, because you can stay there, like, forever. But at that moment, you know, you're going like, I'm going to leave the post office. You've got your daughter watching you, you know, and seeing it's breaking the cycle. Did you hear that? Did you get that pushback from people like, you want to be a police officer? Absolutely. Um, And as I said in my book, the post office did pay nice money, but I just kept feeling feeling like I'm not, I mean, I'm here, I'm making money, but what else am I doing? I'm just sorting mail. It was almost like I felt like I was dying inside. I don't know if people can relate to that. I mean, Mm -hmm. all money is not good money. You know, some people get into careers and they stay there and they're unhappy. That's because they're not fulfilling their purpose. When you really are fulfilling your purpose, you go through all types of things and you come out ahead and you don't, you don't hold it personal. And I knew being at the, at the post office, it was not – it just felt – honestly, it felt like a, this is just a job. I, I mean, I'm just here. I'm here. I make money. I go home. I make money. I go home. But I wasn't – 
it was all about me. That's how I felt, me and my daughter. It felt like I was not uh, contributing anything to, to society. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What were some of your, you know, experiences being black and female in the police force, you know, especially since the police force is, you know, predominantly white and masculine. I'm, you know, curious as to, you know, what your experience has been. Um, my experience was different in, in all three, three different departments. Um, the first police department I went to, um, I became a part of, was the same city that I grew up in. So it was a, a little different. I kind of knew the community. Um, but going into law enforcement into East Cleveland, it was a little different. I, I, I want to say that the males were a little bit more acceptant, accepting of me, um, but then you still had the males that were there, and they looked at me as, I'm being honest with you, a sex object. Like, oh, yeah, because mm. unfortunately a lot of women in law enforcement fall into – uh, what is it, the, uh, that negative culture of sleeping with a lot of different men in the department. And I don't know whether it's because mm. they don't respect us as officers. So a lot of times women feel like if I give you this emotional part of me, maybe you'll respect me, but it gets worse because it's almost like they get passed throughout the department. And once you get that type of a reputation, no matter what kind of officer you are, you are basically uh, uh, the whore of the department. They don't respect you. Um, and then you have the different mm. females that are kind of hard that come in here and they kind of look like boys. And I think that a lot of them try to be hard so that the men won't hit on them or the men, they feel like men can identify with them more because they're hard. They're, they look like a man, mm. but honestly, that's not true either. They still feel like a woman's place is not in this department. The only thing you can do in this police department is be a dispatcher. You can go on dispatch, but you can't go on call. This is for this is a man thing. So um, I did get a little feedback from that. Um, I had supervisors play on my emotions, and basically, I went through a sexual harassment with a supervisor that I never reported because I was afraid. I was new, and I'm like, "What are they going to think about me? This is a white supervisor. If I tell somebody what's going to happen, and the way he presented himself to me, I was afraid." And I'm a fighter. I'm a fighter. I'm a, I've always been a fighter, but I was so afraid because I really wanted this job. I felt like I finally found somewhere where I belonged, and for him to, to approach me like that, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, what do I? I was a, I was terrified, and mm-hmm. I never told anybody until one day um, they were going to put me in a car with him again, and I privately confided in my lieutenant. I said, please. Don't tell anybody, but I told him what happened, and he promised me you will never work on a ship with him again, and you will not you will not ride with him again. And and he did. He what he told me, he he came through, and I I want to say I know he had a conversation with that supervisor. So I know there are a lot of women go through that as well. Now, when I went to Warrensville, it was a different type. Of, it was totally different. They didn't want me from the beginning. They mm-hmm. did not want a woman in there. It was one female that was there before me, but she was she was um a white female, but the crazy thing was she was an emergency hire, which meant that she didn't have to take the test. She didn't have to go through any of the things that the males did. So her coming into the department was not a threat to them. They felt like, oh, you just got the job on a whim. 
See, you you didn't go through the uh, physical agility we did. You didn't take the test. They just gave this to you, so we'll tolerate you. And that's how they treated her. Whereas for me, I went through everything the males went through. I went through the through the test. I, I passed it, scored high. I went through the physical. Everything that they did, I had to do. So they were like, you're a threat. It was almost like, dag, she proved herself that she can do this job like we can. So they really didn't want me want me to succeed. And then when I did and they were like, we're ready to hire her, only thing she has to do is take a polygraph test. A lot of people don't know that during my polygraph test, they tried to humiliate me. They asked me personal questions about, have you ever had sex with a woman before? And I'm like, what? And I said, what does that have to do with me doing the job? And what the polygrapher told me was, well, we're not looking at what your answers are. The only thing we want to know is if you're going to be honest which was not true because everything that I said on my polygraph test after the results came back leaked throughout the police department in Warrensville Heights before I even got hired. Mm. So it was a way to make me ashamed to come there. Mm. Yeah, it was, it was hard. It was hard. It was, when I tell you it was very hard when I finally, and I, and I would refuse to allow them. You, you telling me I can't, I'm going to show you I can so I still walked into that department with integrity and with my head up, knowing they knew so many personal things about me and the things that they were saying, it was just very disrespectful. And then when the chief found out, instead of him addressing it the correct way, the only thing he told me was, I'll make sure the next person that does uh, background checks are more thorough about it. Mm. What? This has never happened to anybody in the department before. I'm the first black female officer, and this happens. You don't think see, this is a problem. This is a problem. And so it, it made me feel some kind of way, but I'm determined. I'm, I'm like, I can do this job. I can do this job probably better than most of these males can. And, I, you know, I, I, I started getting into the community and, and, and getting to learn a little, bit about, a little bit about Warrensville, and I knew they needed a black female there. I had already heard the stories about the white female. I knew it, and I felt like I could really be an asset in that department. So I went on ahead and took the job, whereas a lot of women would have been like, no, or they would have probably pulled up. I probably should have filed a lawsuit then, but that was not my purpose. I felt like I just want to get in. This is, I want to be a police officer. I can take this little hit. The things that I went through in my childhood and I came through, this little stuff is not going to hurt me. And that's what I really believed in my heart. And I felt like once I get in here and I prove to these males I can do the job, they'll look at me different. But that was not true either. How did it being in the police department? How okay, a police being in the police department in and around communities where you had lived? How did it challenge your beliefs about what a criminal was? You know, when you went in the into the station, if you heard, you know, they they were saying like, um, it's a gang member. Did you go along with okay, it's a black or brown person? Or did you think, well, yes, yeah, sometimes it's a black or brown person, but I know people in my neighborhood who aren't gang members. So how did that challenge you, that, that contradiction of what's happening inside the station and what you need to be real in the neighborhood? Honestly, um, I think what, what made my um, judgment better than a lot of officers is because I lived in the community that I served. So every department, I lived in East Cleveland. I moved into Warrensville Heights. 
every department I, I served at, I worked in the community so that I would be able to see the good and the bad in the community. I think that sometimes when you have law enforcement officers who don't know the community, they can't relate to the community, and all they do is I'm arresting people all day, this is what I'm seeing, they become prejudiced against the community without even realizing it. So even black officers, this is what's deep. Even 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 black officers, I'm, I'm so serious. So being able to be in the community, my children going to the school, so I knew good children. I knew my neighbors. I knew, you know what I'm saying, I, 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 I knew uh, uh, prestigious people in the community. I knew uh, straight-A students in the community. So you can't, you're not going to change my mindset when you say, oh, this, can, this, this city is just a piece of mess and all this. No, because I know people in this community that are amazing people. And honestly, there were more good people inside the community than bad. And a lot of times when we would make arrests, they were not even from our community. Um, even in the fact of me arresting criminals, a lot of times I did not look at them like, you a bad person. You, you, you. I listened to what they're saying. Some of those children didn't have a choice. And, I'm, and, I'm, and I know people may not agree with me. I've been in houses where we've, we've had boys, a young man, 17 years old, raising his five-year-old brother and his mother, his father's not in the life and his mother is out on drugs somewhere and she doesn't even come home. So he doesn't even, the only thing he can do is gang bang or sell a little marijuana here or there to try to keep a roof over their heads. And I feel like as law enforcement, if I'm saying I'm here to serve and protect, it's, it's, it's better for me to help put him in a better position and say, hey, let's, let's get you some kind of help, babe. You don't have to be this way. I've had young males say, I don't want to be this way, but what am I going to do, Officer Jones? But that's when, you, that's when a true officer steps up and say, let me, let me get some help for you. Instead of saying, you know what, you're selling drugs, you know what's wrong, you're going to jail. Now I take you to jail. What happens to your four-year-old brother? And then what does he look at me? I'm in uniform. What is his opinion of me now? Because all he sees is that I broke up a family. So I looked at things differently. It was almost like I judge you by the content of your character. Now, don't get me wrong. There are people out there that I've dealt with that just were evil, and that was who they are. And so I would deal with them accordingly. You know what? I don't have to be nasty to you to arrest you. And if sensitive things will come up, like I, I got real sensitive about domestic violence and any kind of crime against a child, rape. It would get to me, and I've had cases where I felt the human side of me come out where I was ready to just go off, but I would have been the same way in or out of uniform. At that point, I was able to lean on some of my other officers and say, hey, i got to step away from this because I'm about, I'm, I'm about to get real unprofessional. But that takes an a, a officer that really stands on their integrity to do that. Mm. Along those lines, you know, communities of color have – you know, such traumatic relationship with the police, um, especially black people. And, you know, just you're talking about your experiences. I'm wondering, you know, to you, what is an ideal police officer? Like if we were to, you know, reimagine, you know, what a relationship between community and police officers should be, what does that look like to you? And I know you, you're obviously an exemplar of what the ideal police officer should be, um, but, you know, your thoughts on that? Um, I think, honestly, it's no such a thing as a perfect officer. Like I said, I wasn't perfect because I'm human, but I do believe that 
honestly, and I, some people may disagree with me, before you become a law enforcement officer, you have got to have a strong moral compass. You've got mm-hmm. to have a, a, a spiritual relationship with a God of your own understanding that's unmovable. Because when you go into law enforcement, you go down a dark path. We see some things that, that normal humans will never see. And it's a slippery slope because, remember, we're all human. So you have to really be able to tap into your moral compass. There are certain things that you should say, I'm a stand for and I won't stand for, and you cannot waver. You have got to have compassion. The compassion that says, I'm not going to allow my own beliefs and my own prejudices. And if you read my book, I even told you I had prejudices mm-hmm. before. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not going to allow my prejudice, prejudices to uh, blind me um, when it comes to dealing with the community or, or, or make me be one-sided. I have to be able to step outside of my prejudice and open my heart and my compassion and hear what this person is saying to me. And if you can't do that, that's a problem. Also, a good law enforcement officer is somebody that can respect people's differences, respect that I may not have grown up like you, respect that I may not look like you, respect that I may not speak like you, but I'm a human being. It doesn't make you superior to me. You have a job to do, but you're able to sit down and say, you know what, I may not understand how you grew up because I didn't, but let me sit down here because I'm here to serve and protect you. Let me step outside of me and hear what you're saying. And a lot of officers cannot do that. Um, I think the other thing as far as law enforcement, honestly, a good police officer has to have integrity. Their integrity has to be intact no matter what. And when they take that oath, they have to be, when they say, I, I promise, I solemnly affirm to serve and protect my community against terrorists, domestic or abroad, they have to understand that, that that may mean one day they have to protect the community from their own brothers and sisters in blue. But that goes back to your moral compass, it goes back to your spirituality, and it goes back to your compassion and your integrity. Now, that part of you, I mean, what, what brought you to our attention was you saw, you were watching the brutality of police officers, white police officers attacking young black people. I mean, you've seen it again and again and again. There was, um, I know, Yolanda Castillo and Mr. Sterling, and those are the ones that was just like the tipping point. And you, you know, you're a mother. You're a black mother. You have black children. And when you're going in here and you're seeing these, and these are people who are taking the same oath that you have, and you're seeing them brutalized there, but for the grace of God, could be one of your children. What brought you to that point to where you said, enough, this is not who we are as people who wear the uniform and where you did your your video that was posted on Facebook and I, and it got over was it uh, over eight million views yes um and 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 unfortunately it's sad to say that it's trending again um, mm-hmm. yeah. that's not it shouldn't be. It should. It just shouldn't be. Um, mm-hmm. I think being in the community and watching how the relationship between police and especially the African American community started to deteriorate. Um, you started seeing the things that we would see on TV that would happen in LA was happening in Cleveland. F the police. We hate y'all. And I'm saying, whoa, wait a minute. I'm a good cop. 
but they weren't mm-hmm. seeing me. They were seeing the uniform. The uniform for them was you're a terrorist. You're, you're, you, when we see this uniform, we don't care what color you are. You're, you're horrible. And it, it did something to me because I knew I came there. I would take a bullet. When I said I would lay down my life, I would jump in front of a bullet for anybody in this city, whether you like me or not. That's my job. I knew that when I would leave home in the morning, there was a chance that I wouldn't come home. And the sad thing is I may take a, a bullet for somebody that hates the police. You know, so um, that weighed on me real heavy, and I felt like it was so important that people saw that all of us are not like this. We're not. I, need, I needed people to understand that. And then I think the tipping point, like I said, was when my son woke me up and was like, Mommy, did you see the murder you know, the, 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 the officer involved shooting. I think that's how, and I'm in my mind, I'm thinking, Oh my God, somebody in my city was in a shooting to see that. I've never seen fear in my son's eyes like that. Mm-hmm. And this is a straight A student top 10. He graduated top 10 of his class, captain of his band. Never. I've never been to the courthouse for my son, never been to the jailhouse for my son. So for this young man, this amazing young man to come and tell me, I'm afraid mommy, is somebody in uniform that wears the same uniform you wear going to shoot and kill me one day? It did something to my spirit. And I sat up, and at first I just was sitting there, and I'm being honest, and when I first watched the video of Austin Sterling, I was looking at it from a police perspective because they, they drill in your head that you're a police officer 24-7, and they make us believe that. So now when we look at things, that's the reason why a lot of times you can't get the compassion that you're looking for from an officer. When you're saying, you're not seeing this, what is happening? They're not looking at you, looking at the situation from a human standpoint. They're looking for looking at the information from a police officer. We're, what happened? We look at the facts. What happened? Mm-hmm. What do you do? But we're not even looking at, could one of our officers be wrong? Because in our mind, police are elite. We're held above. We're held to a higher standard. So, of course, you're not going to see him looking, looking at what, what did he do, what did this person do right, and what did the officer do wrong. We're looking immediately at what did they do wrong. So when I looked at the video at first, that is how I was looking at the video, and I'm being totally honest. I looked at it, what did he do wrong? Did he? And as I started looking at it, it vexed my spirit because even as a law enforcement officer, I found nothing that he did wrong. That was number one. Then I went into uh, being a black woman and hearing the cries of so many other women, black women talking about my child and different things that went on. Now I'm looking and I'm saying, I'm a black woman. How would I look if I wasn't a police officer? How would I feel if I saw this video? And then I understood how the community felt about us and why they felt the way they felt. It was like it gave me an understanding of why they hate all officers. Um, the last thing that happened to me, I looked at it from a mother's perspective, and I was sick. I mean, mm-hmm. that, I got sick to the stomach, and then I told you at one point I'm watching the video, and I could see my son's face on this man's body. And it just, oh, my God, I was hurt. I was, I was ashamed because at the end of the day, these men, these white males still wear the same uniform that I wear, and we call each other brothers and sisters in blue. So it's almost the same way I feel about when a black man kills another black man. That's still my brother. No, I don't like your behavior. But it still affects me. And it still, to me, it still represents all, us as a race of people. So to, for me, when you see an officer, white or black, disrespect that uniform, it reflects on me because I'm your sister in blue. 
So mm-hmm. it, it, it just, it hurt me. And so that's what you all saw on the video. And again, you know, my Facebook page was private. Never did I think that I would have went viral. I think my Facebook page at that time maybe had, I may have had maybe a thousand friends. So I never thought what was going to happen happened. Before this happened, you know, when you had your mother cap on, had you had the talk with your son that so many black mothers talk about having to have, not only with their sons but with their daughters, about how to interact with police if he was stopped or pulled? Had you had to do that? Absolutely. Both of my, yeah, both of my oldest children, and, and the reason why I had to talk is because I watched some of the behavior of the officers that I worked with. Now, that's all the way being honest. And mm-hmm. to watch how they behave with, with how they talk to, you know, a lot of our youth or young black men or women they pulled over, and then to see that a lot of them did not know what to do. And I'm being honest. It's not that they're trying to be disrespectful. They're scared. I'm being pulled over by the police. I don't know what to do. So I saw the importance of me letting my children know this is what you're supposed to keep your hands where they can see it. Always articulate to them. Yes, sir. No, sir. If you don't understand something they said, sir, I don't understand. Can you repeat that? Always let the officers know what you're doing, sir. My driver's license, my proof of insurance, and my glove box. Can I get it out of there? Make sure that you always, because what you don't want to do is give them a reason to say, you made me in fear for my life. Because, unfortunately, that's the national anthem for law enforcement officers, especially coward law enforcement officers, to give them the green light to shoot you or do something crazy. So you always articulate, can I go into my glove box? Is that okay? All right, I'm over. here's my driver's license proof of insurance. Put your hands on the steering wheel so they can see it. Put your hands flat. Don't make any sudden movements. Never get out of your car. So, yes, I, I've had, I had to have the talk with my son and my daughter, which, you know, were older and were driving. Mm, wow. Well, Nakia, we're going to take, Nakia, we're going to take our first break. And when we get back, I want to talk about the aftermath of your video. So we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And today, Kizzy and I are talking with Nakia Jones. She posted a video that got over 8 million views. When you posted the video, who were you, what, who did you think was going to see it? How far did you think it would go? I clearly not to 8 million people. Um, 
well, like I said, my, my Facebook page is private, and most of the people that were on my page were friends of mine. And we have had, you know, discussions about different cases involving police officers before on there, and they're just a back-and-forth thing. And the one thing that I can't say is is that even if we agree, we could agree to disagree and everything was normal. Um, so I really felt like some of them that would be like, hi, you know, you don't get to see what we see. I wanted them to know, yes, I do. I've been seeing it, and I was talking to my friends. I, like I said, that's who I thought, and I felt like I, I felt like I was about to explode. I'm being honest. I never, it was not planned. I, I didn't know it was. I was hurting. I was hurting, and I felt like this was my outlet. And never did I know that. I guess, you know, when my son woke me up in the morning, he's like, "Mommy, you went viral," and I think I, I, I've shared this on a few platforms. I didn't even know what viral meant. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking that somebody hacked into my Facebook page and gave me a virus or something on my computer. I'm like, what do you mean I got a virus? He said, no, mommy, get up. And when I got up, he was like, you all over Twitter. I'm like, I don't even have Twitter. And if I do, I don't ever go in there. He said, you're all over hip hop nation. He said, it's uh, celebrities tweeting you. Your name is a hashtag. And when I tell y'all, I never believed in the blue wall of silence. I did. I've never, the thin blue wall. I never believed in it. At that very moment, I knew fear went all over my body because I didn't expect it. It was, it was strange. that It was like maybe 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. He's like, you're going viral. Um, so now I'm nervous. I don't know what to do. I go back to bed. The next morning, my phone is ringing off the hook. My sister-in-law is calling me like, Nakia, you on Ricky Smiley. Oh, my God, he's playing your video over and over again. I mean, it was it was it was so scary to be thrown into the spotlight like that. It was it was extremely scary. Were you worried about I have to go to work tomorrow? You know, when I get up, I have to get up and go into work. What's this going to be? I mean, or did you want to say, well, I'm just going to take the phone off the hook, call in, just stay home? Um, I thought about what the males at my department was going to think. Um, about the video because I had heard many of them say on many occasions, I'm sick of hearing about this Black Lives Matter stuff. Mm-hmm. So I already knew I was about to go into a war zone. Um, but I had faith in my chief because he was my training officer that he would not let it get out of control. And he was a black man, so I felt like he would understand where I was coming from. I never spoke against the city. I was speaking in general to every law enforcement officer. Um, I felt like with my mayor being a black man, he would also not let it just get way out of hand, even though I knew that there was a lot of prejudice, prejudice tendencies within my police department. So um, I, I was a little nervous, like I didn't know what to expect, um, but I didn't think it was going to be as bad as it, as it was. I, I, I didn't know what to expect. Um, once I got to the department, I was ordered in by my chief. Um, I needed to come in and see him. That's when things really got relevant. I mean, it got clear to me that this was going to be a problem. Um, I, did, I told you one of the detectives came and got me. News media had swamped our back parking lot. They shut the phone down at the city of Warrensville Heights. They were, people were calling from all over the world, you know, of course, some 
supporting me, some not. Some of them saying you need to get rid of that traitor, you know. Then you had mm-hmm. the one people saying we, we love Officer Jones and, you know, different things like that. But when um, he went to bring me to the department, I had to hide in the back seat up under uh, like uh, uh, my jacket so that the media wouldn't bum rush the car. I was so scared, y'all, because I'd never experienced mm-hmm. nothing like that. And this was my union rep coming to get me and a detective, and he told me on the way there, a lot of the males are not happy with you, and they don't, and a lot of them are saying they don't want to work with you anymore. That's when I wow. knew, oh, my God. And these are the same mm-hmm. males that I've served with for over 15 years. I've had their back. I've never left them. I could probably out-police half of them. And it hurt me. I've been there for them. Even when I didn't agree with things that they did, I would call them on them. But I never spewed hate at them or anything like that. But to hear that, I knew then that my career was probably about to change. How did you take care of yourself and your family, you know, during that time with that sudden push in the spotlight? You know what, honestly, it was a lot of prayer, and I'm going to be totally honest. My family, my mom and them mm-hmm. came together, and it, they really, because I was just so scared, but I knew I could not allow my my children to see that, even though they were being mm-hmm. affected, because when they went to school, they were like, oh, my God. Uh, it's funny, because a lot of teachers, of course, agreed with me. So they were like, your mom is the truth. We love your mom. So they weren't getting any of the, they weren't seeing the backlash that I was seeing. Um, my husband knew about the backlash, and with him being a law enforcement officer, I was worried about him because he worked in a predominantly white neighborhood in a white police department. So I didn't know how that was going to affect him. Um, but one day he came home and said, Kai, you wouldn't believe it. One of the detectives in my department, and he's white, he said, your wife has more, excuse my language, balls than any male I ever, that I've ever met. He said, I wish I, could have said, I, could, I was able to say the things that she said because it's true. So his department supported not being funny. They may not have agreed with it, but they never let him see that. I feel like his department supported me more than my own police department. And I had more blacks in my department. My husband was the second black male in that department. And he didn't even see receive uh, the backlash that I received. Yeah. Did anyone, you know, I know that his department, some people did that, but, you know, and maybe there was that, that moment you know, what's going on, but did did anyone in your department come and sit down and say, you know, we understand what you're saying, we've got your back? Um, I remember one particular officer um, that I was real close with, he's white, um, he did take the time when I first came back and he said, Nakia, you know, I want you to know that um, – I'm not on this stuff that some of these guys are. You have a right to your opinion, whether I agree or disagree. You're still a good officer, and I'm going to always have your back. So um, you would have those officers. You would have officers that say, I agree with some of the things that you said and some of the things I didn't. Um, So they would say it, but it was almost like I'm going to say it where nobody else sees me. I did not have an officer, no male officer in my department stand up and be a man and say, enough is enough. You know, I, y'all know if what she said was is right. You know, and and what we're not we're not going to ostracize her because she's a good cop. We know that we worked with her for fifteen years. We know what she's capable of. None of them would do that. It was almost like I was an island 
on the island by myself because in the beginning they didn't want me there anyway. And I had defied the odds and, became, and was a good officer. So it was, it was really, it was hard. It was very hard. I, I wish that some of those males that had come to me and were supporting me would have stood up and said something. And maybe it would have made it a little easier and maybe some of those males, other males would have backed off. But they, I don't know whether it was, I don't want to say nothing because I don't want to get the police department against me. I don't want to be an ostracized person. So I'm sorry, Nakaya, you're going to be out on that island by yourself. You know we'll tell you from a distance we support you, but that's about it. You know, what was interesting, though, is you were talking, I mean, you saw an incident that happened in Louisiana, okay? Mm-hmm. I mean, you weren't saying, yeah, these one real high police officers, they're just as bad, they got, you weren't exposing, you were expressing an opinion about an act of violence by police officers in another state and the, the situation, you know, and, and really, in some ways, saying, you know, we're supposed to protect them and, and serve. You know, you were standing up for what police officers are supposed to do and pointing a finger that this was wrong. But yet, mm-hmm. your own people in your own backyard, you know, they turned on you. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's um, what's so amazing. Yeah, I think what it was is that I broke that blue wall of silence, and I think mm-hmm. that, honestly, some of them felt like uh, Warrensville's not a perfect department. I'm going to leave that right there. And maybe they felt like, oh, God, now she's speaking out. Is she, she, she going to start exposing some of the things that's going on inside of Warrensville Heights? Mm. So I think that that's one of the reasons why they were like, oh, no. You're a traitor. How am I a traitor? What do you, what do you talk? I'm a traitor, and that's what I was labeled a traitor. And I and I asked him. I said, number one, I said, why should I have to choose? I paid my dues. I've shown y'all I can do the job. But I'm a black woman. I can take this uniform off, but I can't take off the color of my skin. I cannot stand in this uniform or stand as a black woman and allow. You, white officers or black officers, male or female, to disrespect the community we're supposed to serve. These people look just like me. These could be, this is, what do you, I can't do that. I, just like I would never let somebody just hurt a police officer. That's how I feel about my community. I'm like, I don't understand how come I, it's almost like they made me feel like I had to make a choice. I had to choose either the badge or the black community. Well, unfortunately, if that's the case, then I'm going to have to go with my community because when I take that uniform off, I am a black woman. Mm-hmm. Were you ever fearful that someone who wore the uniform would do you physical violence? Yes. Um, I think, um, I, I don't know if I've ever mentioned, mentioned it to you, but I got a letter inside of my mailbox. And when I say mailbox at work, my mailbox at work is inside of the squad room, which means that the only people that have access to our squad room are police officers. And maybe like the mayor or the chief of staff, they can come down, but you have to have a code. You're not getting back there. Um, and it was a folded up piece of paper that said, B-I-T-C-H, you need a bullet to the back of your head. Mm. So um, 
And then I noticed that when I would work different shifts for other officers, like we would switch shifts, I would work for them, officers were starting to call off. They wouldn't come to work because I was working. So, you know, not only did I have uh, a fear that they would – the funny thing is I never feared the community. Isn't that funny? The very people that mm-hmm. they wanted me to turn on, I, they made me feel safe. Mm-hmm. Even the little, the, the even the worst areas where we got our little, you know, we got our our interesting people there that do their dirt. Even them, them, those people, the people that I have ta- had taken to jail was like, Miss Jones, you the truth. Whereas my department was totally different. My fear was not from the community. My fear was from the officers within my department or thinking, are y'all gonna set me up or something crazy? So I did for a long time, and my family felt that way as well. And then after I brought brought it to my uh, chief and my mayor's attention that this was going on and I was threatening, threatened, and I was thinking that they would take that seriously and, and do a, a, a formal investigation on it, which should have been done. That's a criminal offense. You can't threaten to shoot somebody in the head, and then you know you have officers that have guns, so they can do it. It's not like they don't have access. They can. Um, instead of them doing their due diligence and and really doing an investigation, what they did was uh, my mayor used to uh, play for the NBA. And he decided in order to address my concerns of my safety, he decided to do a locker room uh, meeting. And what he said was once he came into the meeting, you get to say your bit. When I played with Michael Jordan and we was pissed off at each other, we would all get in the locker room and you just say what you want to say. And after we leave here, you don't, um, when you leave this room, everything that was in this room stays in this room. And I'm sitting here inside in, front of, in the middle of all these males, and I'm looking like, wait a minute. You know that one of these males threatened my life. You know that one of these males in here sent them derogatory letters to me, and you're sitting me in the middle of them telling them to take shots at me? He's like, you can say how you felt about the video. Say your bit. Tell her. And I'm looking like, wait a minute, this meeting is supposed to be about my safety. And to watch my lieutenants get up and say I was disgraced and how they didn't like me, and then I had another white male officer admit, he said, yeah, I did some of that stuff. I did it because I was angry. To hear my mayor and my chief tell them, when you, if whatever you say here stays here, you're not going to be punished for it. I'm sitting here like this has got, I'm in a nightmare. To hear my mayor say during this meeting, oh, I was going to get you. Oh, I was going to get you. I got some amazing attorneys in Cleveland. But they said we didn't have a case because you were at home and out of uniform and we didn't have a social media policy. The two days or three days after the video went viral, they implemented a social media policy. Mm. This is how deep this, I mean, it was, it was so humiliating, and I felt like the mayor, the message the mayor, the chief gave to those males was, y'all can do whatever you want to do. You won't be held responsible for it because later on during arbitration and my deposition, um, my, the arbitrator asked my chief, did you ever do an investigation on her concerns? During arbitration, my chief said no, and all of this is public record. During my deposition that was held three weeks later, when asked, did he do an investigation, my chief said yes. And so my, my attorney said, well, who did you investigate? He said, I thought Nakaya wrote the letter to herself, and I sent a, a writing sample down to BCI. They were trying to charge me with fraud. BCI came back and said, no, she did not write this to herself. This is not even her handwriting. And they did it twice. 
And after it came back, no, it was not me. They never investigated anybody else in that department, which made me feel like they knew who wrote them letters to me. Wow. Wow. That is just, like, mind-blowing. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, because you talked about being, you know, female in there and how you have been subjected to things that were humiliating. But to have to sit and let all of them say whatever they wanted to, I mean, that is just like, it's like you were being punished for speaking your truth. And they were allowed Mm -hmm. to to say whatever, and you were just supposed to, like, sit there and take it. And then to say, you wrote the letter yourself, I mean, mean, it's just like a continuation of, a harassment that happens to women when they stand up and say things. I mean, that's just like amazing. And it's the truth. It will be almost like me taking a rape victim, and she's coming to me saying, um, or 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 a woman saying, I was threatened. This guy is threatening to rape me, and I'm not sure who's writing the letter, but it's like several guys. And I tell her instead of uh, instead of investigating, I tell her, Well, I'm gonna bring you in this meeting. I'm gonna sit you around all these males. You don't know who said it but I'm going to let them take shots at you. It was almost like being re-victimized. It was painful, and I, honestly, after that day, when he said, oh, we was going to get you, those words stuck in my head all the way to the day they terminated me. I knew it. Mm-hmm. I knew it was coming. Um, if you pull my record to this day, I don't have not one write-up in my file. Fifteen years, never been written up. Never. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you speaking about your experiences within the uh, police force really highlight, you know, the issues and, you know, given in this time that, you know, police brutality is still an issue across this country. And we have conversations lately um, within these past few months around, you know, one, defunding the police, and you also have another group who is saying, abolish the police. And I'm just wondering, you know, what are your thoughts on those conversations around, you know, should we have police? Should we not have police? Should we reform it? Um, What are your thoughts on that? Um, Number one, we all know if we're honest that at this point, and I hate to say it this way, but police are a necessary evil. We have people out here that they're, they're criminals. And this, I'm being honest. They're not going to change. They're not going to. That's who they are. So you need someone to be able to deal with the criminal element of things. And I'm talking about blacks, white criminals, Chinese. It doesn't matter. We just have criminals. So you're going to have to have law enforcement. When it comes to defunding the police, my thing is when you say that, what do you mean? Because if a lot of police departments are lacking training because they don't have the money. So if you take away funds from the police, that means their training is going to get worse. And some of the incidents that you are seeing is terrible training. What about cultural sensitivity? And we see now that our that uh, the president is trying to pull cultural sensitivity out of classes and out of teaching. He doesn't want it taught anywhere. And my thing is, Cultural sensitivity is so important because how can you, as a white officer, work in a black community if you don't understand it, you don't respect it? Do you understand that when, black, when we get excited, we talk loud, we talk with our hands? We're not a threat. That's just who we are. You know, if you don't understand the community that you serve, it, that means that you can't respect it. And if you don't respect it, how can you protect it? 
You can't. Mm. Because you're always going to go in with your own mindset of this is what my community look like, so this is what this community should look like. And if it don't, something is wrong with the people. Mm. And so I, I, I feel like when you talk about defunding the police, what I think is you need to allocate those funds the correct way. Training needs to be, be changed big time, especially in the academy. It's very watered down. Um, I think that you need to, to implement citizen review boards where you have citizens from each district. Pick a citizen um, to represent each district of your community. Um, but you have to have various ages. You want an elderly person on there. You want a young person on there. You want a middle-aged person. Somebody that can be a voice and a leader in that particular area of their community that is trustworthy, that you can sit down and they can actually be a part of the interviewing process when it comes to law enforcement that's going to be policing their community. I feel like the community should have a say-so about who is an authority over their community. And when you're dealing with um, police brutality or anything that comes up with police misconduct, that citizen review board should be able to sit in on those and give an opinion to the mayor what they feel like the punishment should do if it. You know, I think about those things are very, very important. So you need to allocate funds to that as well. You need to make sure that um, that um, um, you have your 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 changing your hiring process uh, process as far as like polygraph tests. Those questions that they were asking me are way out of line. But why not ask questions like, "Have you ever been a part of a hate group?" Do you have prejudices against any 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 uh, ethnic group? Are you, do you have a problem against working with women? Do you have a problem working with men? These are the questions that you need to be able to ask. And these are also questions that your citizen review board should be able to ask. So if I come in and I'm interviewing to be a police officer for your city, um, Ms. Brown, you should be able to say, why do you want to come work with, for my city? What do you know about my city? So now it gives you a, now you can help make a decision. No, that person's not good for this, this community. They don't even understand it. So, Defunding the police altogether, I don't agree with unless you're talking about training and hiring practices. You know what I'm saying? Changing those things because I believe that, honestly, before those officers go rogue, when you see them start beating people and shooting people, they already had behavior and disciplinary, disciplinary problems before it happened, and what happens is it gets overlooked. Because right now, law enforcement is so desperate for officers, and you have so many other officers, older officers, that are still there, and they still have that good old boy mentality. They don't believe in community policing. They believe you do what I say do, and they're passing on to the next generation of officers. So it's, it's, it's like a cycle. You've got to change those hiring process. You've got to be more uh, more thorough when you're hiring police officers. It used to be where it was hard to become a cop. It's not hard anymore. And you have people, I know my friend, I'm going to look out for my friend, and you have departments that will hide arrest records about white officers, but let a black officer come in and been arrested. They amplify, we're not hiring him, because they want to continue to make the department reflect power and privilege. This is privilege. We don't want a black officer. We want white. We want white is right, because that is the mentality of that department. So we're going to take our next break, and, and we're going to come right back to that, that part because I'm thinking about something that you said earlier. But we'll be right back.
Reflections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And Kizzy and I are talking with Nakaya Jones. Um, she is, was a, a police officer who posted a video talking, really calling out bad, bad police officers. You know, Nakaya, once earlier you had said how sometimes you could go into this home and here might be the 17-year-old raising the younger child because the father was gone, the mother might have been on drugs, and you could look at that and through conversations recognize is a place for this, this young man jail? What happens to his younger brother? Is this where community policing, a community review, or police working in, in tandem with the community to know about that? Is that where you could see that these kind of decisions, these, which could be life-changing, not only for the for older child, but for the younger one. Is this where that would come from? Absolutely, especially if you have community policing. If you have a good community policing base, you really are, you know, you're making sure that your community officers, community policing officers are trained correctly. Honestly, that's where you avoid the situations of having to go and see a 17-year-old with a 4-year-old because they trust the police, and now you're in the community, so now you're seeing it. Now I'm seeing his mom. I'm seeing this little boy doesn't have shoes on his feet. What is going on? So it's almost like it doesn't get to the point where it gets bad, and now the school is saying, I haven't seen such and such in school for several days. Can you go check on them? Well, if I'm in the community, I'm seeing this before it even gets out of hand. I'm seeing that something's wrong because I'm in my I'm I'm learning my community, so I'm out there. I'm going to the door to door. I'm going into you know my 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 areas where it may be a little bit more crime and trying to figure out why we have this going on. I'm in I'm out there, and a lot of times, if you are a good community oriented police officer, you can stop things before they get out of hand. So now me seeing this little boy out here at four or five years old with no shoes on his feet, I'm talking, "What's going on, baby? Where are your shoes at?" But you have to have compassion. And if you I don't got no shoes, why you don't have no shoes? All you have to do is talk to them. They'll tell you. Then what you have to do is then I will go, where's your mom at? She's not home. She don't. They'll, children are going to tell you. My brother takes care of me. So now I need to build a relationship with the older brother so that he can trust me. And I'm talking to this, and he's talking to me, and, and as, as we're talking, that's where community policing comes in because now the community trusts the police, the police trust the community, and now I'm saying, let me get you some help. And when I say get you some help, he trusts the fact that I'm not trying to hurt him or set him up because you're trying to set me up. No, 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 I'm not. But if you're known in the community, they know, they, they, they judge you by your works. They see how you're helping. So that is so important 
important mental health issues. You know, a lot of times officers, we're not trained to deal with mental health issues. But if we're in the community, we get to know the people in our community that, not being funny, every community got the drunk. So I know how to deal with uh, mm-hmm. Kozar when I see him on the corner because I'm in the community. Kozar, get yourself together and let's go home. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> when, I, when I see mm-hmm. somebody that has mental health issues, mm-hmm. I don't – start harassing him or intact. I know you ain't, he hasn't took that medicine a day. Let me go to their house and go get his mom because I know his mother's the only one that can, that can calm him down instead of getting into, I know he's irate and aggravated instead of messing around and an officer gets afraid or claim they're afraid to shoot this man because he has a mental health issue. I'm a community police officer. Let me go get his mom because I know his mother can talk him into the car. That's, what, that's how important it is. It becomes where the community trusts the police, and now we're starting to make arrests again because Miss Smith, 70 years old, is not afraid to call the police and say, hey, listen, there's some drug dealers down the street from me, and I know that's what they're doing. Uh, we really need your help. Um, and they don't have to worry about me as a law enforcement officer going back and telling these drug dealers who called on them. And so that's the reason why the crime rate is so high now because the community does not trust the police. To be honest with y'all, you know the reason why we had a very high arrest rate in a lot of cities is because of the community. The community is the ones that help us get conviction. A lot of times when it's officers doing it on their own, a lot of times, honestly, that's where you get bad convictions. Mm-hmm. So, all right, so this video happened. You got, I mean, I saw it on Color of Change. I had a petition supporting you. I know that um, you have been invited to sit on a televised panel with, um, to discuss race-related issues. And, you know, people say, you know, if you see something, say something, stand up, you did it. And what happened was they went after you. They went after you big time to have you fired. Okay. Can you tell us about how that went, did, you know, I, I'm sure you, you kind of saw it coming. And on the one point, you did the right thing. You know, you stood up. You, you said what needed to be said. You know, you took a lot of crap from them. And then they had you fired. And you filed a suit. Um, I think, as I recall, they, um, they said that your suit was, wasn't valid or you lost that suit. Um mm-hmm. How did that whole process, I mean, it almost feels like to me, like just like how you said you went to the thing where you had to sit in the room and they all talked about you, they have to file mm-hmm. the, the discrimination lawsuit against them with all these things that had happened. That, again, is like you being victimized yet again for doing the right thing. How did that affect you? Um, honestly, it affected me. Oh, it was rough. And um, one thing I will say to your listeners, depression is real. Don't let nobody make you think it's not, and it's okay to go talk to somebody. I know a lot of times us as African-American, especially women, because we're so strong, and people look at us and they see our exterior being is we're strong, but inside we're falling apart. Um, Please talk to somebody. Um, I was I was falling apart. I was trying to still maintain this exterior for my children so they wouldn't see what was going on and trying to be strong for my husband. But inside, I was dying. I had lost, I felt like I had lost my purpose. 
I lost my identity. The only identity that I knew was Officer Nakia Jones. And so I was, I felt, I, oh, my God, I felt like, honestly, at one point I just, I told God, if I don't wake up in the morning, I'm all right with that. That's how mm. bad it got. Um, during my arbitration, finding out that my union attorney really was not for me. Um, when you go through arbitration, you, your union attorney who's supposed to fight for you, and you know union attorney, unions are really strong in police with police, um, and the city gets to decide your arbitrator, the person that's going to make the decision. There's no way in the world that my union attorney, if he really was for me, would have sided for that arbitrator. The arbitrator they chose 98% of the time rules with the city. Mm. I, w- I was defeated before I started. The, the um, attorney that I chose to take my lawsuit, he was not equipped for that. When you go to fight a, fight a city, you have got to have a good attorney that knows what they're doing because the city has money everywhere. So what they do is prolong and they draw it out and they draw it out. And then you have to remember, I, at, during this time, I'm dealing with a brain injury. I was just in, a, in, a, in my police car and I had a bad accident. I was still going through treatment. When I, was, when I got fired, I was on workers' compensation. People don't know that. Mm. That's how bad it was. It was really bad, and my deposition and my arbitration ran together. So my lawsuit and my arbitration fighting to get my job back all ran together. So it was almost like I was going through a double trauma at, at the same time. It was, hor- it, was, it, was, it was a rough experience, and that's the reason why a lot of people don't, don't speak out because you have to understand they know in some departments, it's going to, you're going to, you're, going to um, you're risking your livelihood. You know you're going to lose your job. In bigger departments, you might come up dead. They will kill you. This, I mean, this is very serious talk. So a lot of people that want to say something, they're not going to say, say anything, but who wants to lose their job where they feed their families? Who wants to be looking over their shoulders knowing that at any given time an officer may leave you out there in a situation where you get shot and killed? Or they may be the one that you get killed by friendly fire. These are things that really happen. So to go through that, it was, it was terrifying. As strong as I am, it was terrifying. I was scared. But in the same token, I felt like God was saying, you got to keep pushing forward. So I, I, I couldn't give up. And in many cases, I did. Once they fired me, I wanted to get better. I wanted to feel a certain kind of way. I felt like the community did not stand with me the way that they should have. I felt like when I got fired, they should have protested all around that department because they knew what type of officer I was. So I felt out there alone. So once I got fired, it was easy for me to, to silence my voice. Still today, I'm fighting. I'm fighting for the rights of us as African Americans, as Hispanics, and, and you know, and, 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 and even whites that live in, in poverty stricken areas, they are being treated funny by police. You'd be surprised. And fighting for good law enforcement officers that are saying, we're here, we, 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 we really do take our integrity, we take this badge serious, we are here to serve and protect. Um, I'm standing in the gap for both. And I have not allowed them to silence me. And you'd be surprised to this day, I am still, I'm not, I'm on living maintenance, which is workers' comp. The city is still fighting me, trying to stop my treatment, trying to get me off workers' comp. And they already know that the doctor says she can't work more than 20 hours a week because of the brain injury. So I'm still fighting with them today, even though I've left Ohio 
and moved to Atlanta, they're still fighting me. Thank you okay. so much for, oh. And no, Christina, I mean, really, I wanted to say thank you so much for, you know, highlighting mental health awareness. That's such a crucial element of this um, conversation. And I know that, you know, two years after your video went viral, you wrote your book called The Truth Divided. Um, can you tell our listeners, you know, what that book is about and what led you to write that book? Um, the book is about being divided as a black woman, a mother, and wearing the blue uniform. Um, and honestly, when I wrote that book, I was crying out. That's, it, it, it actually tells you what was going on in my heart. Um, it was a release for me. It, it helped me a little bit. Um, it was a lot of things I could not touch on because at the time I still was a police officer, so there were certain things I could not expound on. But I also felt like I was going to be the voice for other officers, especially black female officers that had not been able to exercise their voice. And then I also thought, felt like officers could read that and see, hear the heart of a mother you're the heart of a black woman. Um, I was hoping that exact, the community would see that all law enforcement isn't a ba- are not bad and that we're human beings. So that was my purpose for really writing that book. Um, I didn't even think I was going to write a book. I, that's not something that was ever in my mind to do. It was suggested to me, and at first I was totally against it, but it helped me in a lot of ways mentally to get some of that stuff out of me. Um, so that book and, and, and people that read it, they all say the same thing. They're like, oh my God, it was so powerful, but it was coming from my heart. You know, one of the things that when you talked about the trauma, you talked about the trauma of the workers, both trials happening at the same time, um, the, the, the injury, but you had to go home and look at your kids and in a way, answer that you were going to be okay, answer to them that why it is important to stand in your truth, even though they were seeing how you were suffering and and what you were going through. And it's a lesson that you were teaching them about integrity. How are your children? What What do they tell you? about this journey you've, you've taken? Um, it's funny because my youngest children were happy once I was home with them. They said, you know, I, oh, Mommy, I always knew you were a hero, but we really didn't get to see what kind of hero you were until you've been home with us because I worked 12-hour mm-hmm. shifts. So a lot of times I was at work, so that touched me. And being honest, ooh, I don't want to get all teary, but I apologize. Um, all of my children have all told me that I'm their hero. And mm-hmm. my sons, ooh, I'm sorry, my sons are like, I'm so proud of you that you risked it all, risked everything to setting your truth, and I feel like you did it for us, Mommy. You know, I never had a problem with the police. My children didn't have an issue with the police. I was in a small little suburb. 
and he said that not only did you speak up for us, you spoke up for people that can't speak for themselves. And he one day he was talking to Mommy, could you imagine all the people that have lost their lives at the hands of police that were not on recordings that we don't even know about? He said, Mommy, you were their voice, but you were also their voice for officers, good officers that are being killed in the line of duty because of the actions of other bad officers. So my children have told me how proud, I, how proud they are of me, and that's the re- they give me the motivation to keep going because I know that they're learning from me how to stand in your truth no matter what. You had to stand for something, you fall for anything, no matter if you have to stand alone. And so that, they, they help fuel me, but they're, they are very proud of me, all the way from my 8-year-old to my 28-year-old. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. So now not only do they recognize, you know, what, you, what you're doing, but they're so proud of you. That is it's really beautiful, you know, and you're their hero. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you mentioned to me that you're going to write another book. What will that be about? Whew. Honestly, that book is my exodus. I feel like Mm -hmm. that's my healing. God is allowing me to heal, and this book is going to tell it all. I mean, from the chapters, the first chapter is called Like a Bridge Over Troubled Waters because I kept saying throughout my my video, I want to be the bridge, but I didn't understand what, what being the bridge, what came with being the bridge. Sometimes we say things, but we don't understand what we're taking on, we said, and something that Bishop T.D. Jake said to me when I was on his show that was so profound, he asked me, he said, do you understand what a bridge is utilized for? And I said, yeah, to get people from one side to the other, bringing people together. He said, yeah, but it's also used to be trampled on, spit on, mistreated. And I'm sitting here and I'm listening to him. I, I never, I never, it, it almost like it never dawned on me. I didn't see that side of it. But everything that he said, I understand it now. I felt that. So it's almost like it's, it's, you're getting to see everything that I went through and how God brought me through. And through my darkest hours, the biggest thing I can say is it brought me closer to God. And I really know for certain without a shadow of a doubt that there is a God because on many of occasions I felt alone and I, I asked what God, why? Why, am I, why do I feel so lonely? Even though I'm married, I got you. Why do I feel so lonely? And then he had to take me back. Jeremiah was alone. I had to pull my prophets alone by themselves so that you would learn how to lean on me. And so even on one of the chapters in my book is talking about my spiritual journey and the things that I went through, it was, it was amazing. I had to go through forgiveness, people that I, I was hurt by in order to move forward. So this book is all about healing. Um, it's my healing, and I think that it's going to help heal other people as well. Thank you for sharing that. Um, in this weird situation we're in that is pan- the pandemic, um, how have you been, you know, it's such a, a time that we've never imagined in our lives. How have you been in this very strange and sensitive time? You know what, uh, I think I look at it a little different. In a way, I thank God for it because I think everything was moving so fast that people were not, 
paying attention to what was they weren't paying attention to what was going to racism and all this because everybody has their life and everybody's moving so fast and everybody's and I felt like God had to put us to a halt so that we could see what was going on. Sometimes we move so fast and doing so much and get caught up in our own stuff that we don't look at what's going on right in front of us. And I felt like when that pan- pandemic hit, if you pay attention, that's when the movement started. I remember going to bed and praying and saying, God, I, I will never question you. And sometimes I hurt and I question- asked myself, if I knew, th- knew then what I knew n- know now, would I have spoke up? And on some occasions I was like, I probably wouldn't have. I'm go- I mean, this is crazy. I lost everything. But after the death of George Floyd, the pain that I felt, and it's, it's different for me. When I see these type of things on TV, I take it personal. Like I get, I cry, I get sick almost. And it's almost like my, I get a, a storm brewing, brewing inside of me and I have to speak on it. Um, the next, I told my husband the day after it happened, I said, a nation is about to rise. I feel it. That's what God has given me. He looked at me, he was like, what? And every, after that day, you saw in every city across the country and outside of the country the protest. It was almost like we're tired. And I, I thought, oh, God, I just got chills all over my body. I knew then that me speaking up was not in vain. I felt like God was giving me a mantle to blow the horn, and it was like a warning. This is what's coming. Because right mm-hmm. after that, cabinet took a knee after I spoke up. It was like it was starting to come, mm-hmm. and I know... It's all in God's time. So, the you know, of course it's, it's trying because you can't go different places. But I love being at home with my children anyway. So it's not an issue for me. But it, was, it made, gave me a chance to quiet my mind and sit still for a minute, get my thoughts together, and really start saying, all right, I see we keep putting all this pain out here, but now it's time for us to heal. What can I do to help us heal? we got to heal. All this pain on top of pain is not going to do anything but breed hatred. And then you're going to start seeing people rage war on the police, and then the police are going to retaliate. And I keep seeing, I'm saying, we got to heal some kind of way. And that's how the book came about, this next book. And, you know, on Wednesday nights, I always do um, on my Officer Nakia Jones page on Facebook, I, speak, I talk about um, cases that are, that are in the limelight or things that should be discussed to help help the community understand what happened and what was going on and know you're not crazy. Yes, that officer was out of line or giving them information of why officers act the way they do and I, um, or why they, they did certain things. I have to educate them on the laws because a lot of times you, you got, people think they know the laws, but they don't. Like a lot of people didn't know that officers, we do not have to tell you when you're in a car why we pulled you over. Hmm. We don't have to tell you that. The only time we have to tell you that is if I give you a citation, then I have to explain to you, I'm citing you for a red light or I'm citing you for such and such and such. And a lot of officers, especially rogue officers that, that are wait, some officers come to work like, yeah, I want to get into something. Oh, yeah. They use that against the community because the community has no idea that if I ask this officer, why are you pulling me over? They don't have to answer me. So now I get enraged, like, see, that's what I'm talking about. You pulled me over, and now argument is, in, ensues. Now that officer just got the upper hand on you. Mm. So when you really know your rights, you kind of know how I'm supposed to act, to act accordingly. So when they say certain things, you know not to get pulled into it. You don't get it. I had to tell people, resisting arrest, you can't, <laughs> an officer can't arrest you for resisting arrest. 
And people are like, I don't understand. Resisting arrest is a secondary offense. I have to tell you you're under arrest first before you can resist arrest. How can I resist arrest if I don't know I was under arrest? Hmm. And that was, so it's so many things, so I'm educating us. I'm, I'm putting that out there. I'm bringing other law enforcement officers on there to talk to the community so that people can see we're human and we stand with you all. But the thing is that if you really want more good law enforcement officers to speak up and stand out honestly, and I've learned this during this pandemic, you have got to get the community to make a sound voice to stand beside them, not behind them, not far away. you got to be able to say, if you fire one of our good officers, you're going to have to deal with the community. And, Mayor, if you fire one of our good officers, I can promise you, when your term is up, you, we, will not, we will not elect you back. The community's voice is so powerful, you all don't understand the power that y'all hold. And you all can change the trajectory of your police department. Trust me. So I'm, I'm learning that um, being dealing with this, you know, pandemic, and I'm also able to sit still and watch what leadership is really doing. Well, you know, I mean, that is, that is so important, and I, and I believe that, like you said, these things are happening and there are conversations that are doing. Um, that page is the real officer, Nakaya Jones, um, where you're educating people. You've got your book. You've got a new book coming. Um, what else are you about? about are you doing right now? Um, so, of course, I'm writing the second book. Um, we're, we're doing our um, Officer Nakaya Jones page actually for October um, on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Um, we're doing for the month of October a time to heal. So I'm allowing people that have been through some things to share their story, and we're helping them heal. And it's been amazing. It has been amazing. We had a police officer that's been on both sides of the law uh, yesterday. Um, she talked about her experience being in law enforcement for 20 years, being a detective and different things, but then ended up going to federal prison. So she talked about mm. that. We uh, talked to a young man yesterday that was on the show that had been brutalized by police officers in Alabama. But to hear him go from I hate the police to, you know what, no, I don't. And, 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 and I want my story to help people not hurt them. It was amazing. Like, oh, my God, this, this show has been amazing. Um, in November, we're going to honor women that's been on the front line where men wouldn't stand up, the women did. So that's going to be in November. So I, I, I'm almost at a point to where we're kind of, we always talk about the police brutality aspect of it, but it's time to change it a little bit. You see that all the time. It's try to heal, you know, help us heal through it. Um, I'm on IG as well. Uh, it's also the same thing, Nakia, uh, Officer Nakia Jones. Um, I am writing right now, I'm writing a police drama, almost like SVU, but it's going mm. to honestly depict us as African Americans. I want them to see the good sides of us as well. Yeah, you're gonna see the rough sides, but I want them to see people in the community and how we live and how some of us are successful and where we came from. And it's powerful. So um, I just actually teamed up with another uh, retired law enforcement officer that that decided to come on on the writing team. So we're writing that right now. Um, BT is looking at it. So I pray by the grace of God that it's picked up. Um, it does, and, and, and honestly, for me, it's not the fine. It's not money for me. The only thing I need is just to be able to survive for me and my children. That's it. 
It's all mm-hmm. about education and leaving a mark. When I, when God takes me from here, I want to be able to say I left a positive mark on the world, that, that my legacy will never die. My name will be spoken years from now in a positive manner. Um, I think that's so, so important. So that's something else that I'm doing as well. Um, and we are also at, um, in the process of starting a whistleblower program for law enforcement officers to protect officers that decide, I want to turn around, I want to, I want to report uh, uh, bad behavior in my department by other officers where we can protect them, we can help them um, get a good attorney. Because when you go against another officer, your union is not going to back you up like that because now it's a, it's a conflict of interest. So we want to try to get attorneys involved that want to be a part of this program as well, make sure that we have funds for for officers that may get fired so that their families can be all right while they go through the process. So that's the other thing is that um, we're trying to do a whistleblower uh, program um, as well. Well, this is the real officer, Nakaya Jones. Thank you so much for being with us, for the work that you've done, for standing in your truth, and, you know, and for being that example to your children, who I believe will go out and, and continue your work and change the world. I mean, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Well, you're so, well, thank you both for giving me this platform. Thank you so much. And, you know, our listeners are absolutely blessed with your presence, your strength, and your passion for making change. And, you know, I really hope that, you know, 20 years from now, the way that police officers and communities of color um, interact will be completely transformed and you're playing a role in that. So, you know, we thank you for your work. Oh, thank you both. Thank you so much. Thank you for the platform. Um, I'm just grateful and and I, I thank you both very much. Well, we will be watching your page and watching for that show on BET because you have spoken yeah. it out mm-hmm. there into the universe. It will be. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thank you. And um, on behalf of Kizzy and I, we want to wish you a good evening. Um, take care of yourself. Take care of that beautiful family of yours. And we'll be watching to see the, the next great things coming from you. We want to thank our guest today, Nakaya Jones, a former police officer for the city of Warrensville Heights, Ohio. In her book, The Truth Divided, she shares her experiences following the posting of a Facebook video after the deaths of Philando Castile and Elton Sterling in 2016. This video continues to get views and is the focus of many discussions on community policing. We commend our guest, Nakaya Jones, for her bravery, strength, and faith. Standing up for justice in this society is a risk. It is frightening, even life-threatening, but it is necessary if we, especially as Black people, want to see our future generations thrive. 
We thank Nakaya for bringing to light the disparities and bigotry within the police force and raising awareness on mental health in the Black community. We truly wish Nakaya nothing but peace, stability, and happiness for her and her family. Thank you, Kizzy. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can support the podcast by becoming a sponsor of Collections by Michelle Brown on Patreon.com. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.